I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. On this Thanksgiving Day, I want you to ponder this question from Yale University professor Ned Blackhawk. When and where does the story of America start and who constitutes its central cast? That is among the central questions he poses in his book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. In this encore presentation of a conversation first recorded for Washington Post Live on April 27th, Professor Blackhawk explains why encounter rather than discovery must structure America's origin story, the importance of Native Americans in the formulation of the U.S. Constitution, and what he hopes his students and readers take away from this book. So back in January, the Post dubbed your book among the books to read in 2023, noting that uh, it, quote, invites us to reconsider our re received stories. What inspired you to reevaluate the stories we've been taught about Native Americans in the formation of the United States? I've been teaching Native American history uh, since 1999 um, and have been studying it for nearly all of my adult life. And I've never um, ultimately felt sufficiently satisfied with not only many uh, kind of commonplace uh, understandings of the subject that uh, pervade the academy, that are, exist in popular co uh, culture or are found in other institutional spaces, um, but also couldn't ever sufficiently find a kind of common course book or a set of materials to make sense of some of the unifying themes that expand across the many centuries of Native American history. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been, uh, since that initial moment of teaching, a profusion of scholarly and academic work in the field. And I've been trying as best as I can to kind of stay conversant and uh, active in these conversations and felt uh, the need to kind of bring it together in some kind of overarching form that um, draws upon what I'm calling the rediscovery of America, an academic and intellectual um, uh, rediscovery or unearthing that um, currently is underway among uh, many uh, scholars in the field. Well, it's interesting that you use the word um, discovery or rediscovery, because in your book, you say encounter rather than discovery must structure America's origins story. Explain what you mean by this. Um, I do use the term rediscovery uh, to lead us eventually, I hope, to uh, encounter. Um, and there are scholars, myself included, who are working um, to deepen and uh, denaturalize uh, assumptions about the American past and it's just really wonderful to be a part of this generation of active um, uh, scholars and um, historians doing uh, really exciting things. Uh, the term encounter, I think, is a better uh, paradigm for thinking about the meeting of diverse communities across American historical landscapes. Um, it invites us to think beyond the Euro-American subject as the exclusive actor or set of actors within the American national story and allows us potentially to see Native American communities as multiple sovereigns or pre-existing polities who encountered as well 
um, newcomers upon their lands. You know, in in that um, Washington Post uh, little brief about your book saying it should be a book to read in 2023, they note that uh, in, in accounts of American history, indigenous peoples are often treated as largely incidental, either obstacles to be overcome or part of a narrative separate from the arc of nation building. And you argue that U.S. history, quote, minimizes the extent of indigenous power and agency. Talk more about that. Things didn't just happen to, to Native Americans is the larger point, isn't it? Correct. And this book attempts, you know, in some small way to refashion our commonplace understandings of many chapters of American history. It's divided into 12 chapters. It's divided essentially to two halves or two parts. And each chapter and each half have a kind of uh, driving imperative to underscore not just the violence or victimization or dispossession that are central to understandings of U.S. history, but also the astonishingly understudied and underrecognized capacity of Native Americans to not only endure and survive and adapt to these centuries of transformation, but also fundamentally shape what we think of as conventional subjects of American historical inquiry. So, for example, um, there's a whole chapter on the uh, what I call the indigenous origins of the American Revolution that highlight how in interior Native American policies and trading relations and tensions across the uh, backcountry of Pennsylvania and uh, along the Ohio River headwater regions um, were determinative factors in the eventual outbreak of what I call settler uprisings that uh, helped create a consciousness of anti-Indian and or uh, distinctive American political uh, social identities. And it's not incoincidental then that these terms end up in things like the Declaration of Independence. Eventually, a new kind of recalibrated U.S. government will incorporate Native Americans into the Constitution in very unique ways. And none of those are, as you said, kind of incidental or accidental. They're deliberate outcomes of dramatic historical encounters that and conflicts that we've often been um, not sufficiently informed about. All right, I want to tease out some things that you just you Please. pointed out in, in in your in your answer. First thing, you mentioned that your your book is in two halves. The first half is uh, up until the Constitution, right? And then the second half is everything that, from the Constitution on. Why did you decide to have the the um, formulation of the U.S. Constitution be the dividing line? Well, uh, the Constitution really begins the, uh, the understood history of uh, the American Republic. Um, and even though uh, independence came um, on the battlefields at Yorktown and at the Treaty of Paris in 1783, the uh, government of the United States at the time in the 1780s was unable to effectively manage the challenge of nationhood. So the reconstituted government uh, under the Constitution um, uh, really begins a whole uh, process of federal Indian policy and laws and uh, governing structures and challenges and treaties and other kind of um, essential attributes that shape both the Native American as well as American experience. So one of the imperatives or uh, goals of the book is to say that we can't understand Native American history outside of these conventional 
paradigms of American history, and we can't understand American history outside of Native American history. And so the second half of the book, which is called Struggles for Sovereignty, is not just about the struggle of Native Americans to obtain and maintain and retain autonomy over their lands and resources and community members, but also more kind of suggestively says that the American Republic itself is not a a preordained continental power and only through history and challenge and development does it become a continental and then later indeed global power. So these sovereignties are in many ways interrelated or mutually constitutive. And so I'm really trying to highlight the centrality of Native Americans to every century of American historical development and to do so in ways that you know, most scholars and educators really have not sufficiently done. Um, the second thing I want to tease out, and I want to come back to the issue of sovereignty, but the second thing I want to tease out, you said, um, you know, that Native Americans were uh, incorporated into the incorporated into the U.S. Constitution, which has sort of a, a benign feel to it. But the incorporation isn't benign at all. If I remember correctly, there are three. I think you said there are three references to Native Americans uh, in the Constitution. But what are those references and why is it important um, or the significance of having those references in the Constitution? Um, and, and equally important or interesting as a historian is that those references all come out of particular histories and moments. So uh, the most important reference in the Constitution is in the Commerce Clause, uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, which reflects, in, in a sense, the uh, failure of the Articles of Confederation to handle interior Indian affairs and a generally uh, recognized consensus, uh, which was there at the time among uh, the Constitutional Convention writers, that a stronger Federalist government needed to be formed in part in order to handle interior land policies and to handle interior Indian diplomatic and military and political affairs. And so all the states who um, ratify the Constitution set, uh, cede the authority over Indian affairs to the federal government. That makes Indian affairs a national or federalist process. And so there will be, as there are today, historic challenges to this federalist paradigm or this federalist supremacy over Indian affairs. And particularly during the antebellum era under presidents like Andrew Jackson, numerous states will uh, basically ignore national law and constitutional rulings and essentially remove by violence and force and other means uh, Native peoples from their communities. That is a violation of these initial Federalist uh, principles, these kind of foundational constitutional distinctions that are found in the Constitution. And so to understand the place of Native Americans in American history, we have to understand these constitutional and political forms. You know, I'm, I'm reaching over, trying getting the uh, getting the book because, and the third thing I want to I want to tease out is you know your your use of the word sovereignty because I think when people you know hear about Native Americans or or, or the American Indian they think of Native Americans as just people who were here scattered about when in reality they were in nations we had the United States had treaties. Um, with with Native Americans. And that, I think, is a, a and, and I'm pulling out the book because right here on the inside cover, you have 
all of you, no one can see this, but I'm just showing it, all right. of the, the Indian nations and Indian people who were here, here and on, the, on, go ahead, and Professor. The and the end paper has all the contemporary federally recognized and state recognized tribes. And so right, the maps, right. the maps that begin the book and conclude the book in many ways, make the argument of the book or in some small form and speak to the questions that you have or the question that you have about sovereignty. Right. Um, so, so thank you for, uh, thank you for recognizing that. So, so talk about the role of, because it does reframe just that notion alone, reframe how this nation came about, because it wasn't just conquering a people, it was conquering nations. Correct. Um, and many of those nations uh, were not actually conquered. Um, so um, by rec by entering into treaty relationships, uh, the United States did what it did with its European allies as well, is it uh, often concluded wars or ceded territories or recognized um jurisdictions or set up mechanisms of, of um, uh, appropriate um, restitution of various kinds. So um, treaties are the most uh, important form of American lawmaking with native nations, uh, particularly over the first century of American uh, post-1787 uh, constitutional um, history and are at the centerpiece of the doctrine of American Indian uh, retained inherent sovereignty. It's pretty complicated, and the book has lots of chapters about this. Um, I, uh, you know, am involved in uh, lots of uh, um, projects around American Indian sovereignty. It's a particularly complex and at times difficult doctrine to uh, make intelligible. But once you do, you see into this history, you see into this nation, you see into this continent in a way that I don't think most people are really ever potentially even uh, non-native people that often is, many non-educated people in these areas are often not really prepared for. Because you see things like the federal government upholding the rights of tribes over states. You see uh, the federal government um, instituting more recently uh, efforts to uh, enhance the self-governing capacities of tribes to build um, educational systems and land management practices and other kind of essential attributes of governance. And so we've been miseducated in this country so fundamentally about the place of native peoples that we almost have a intellectual residue that kind of inhibits our ability to see native nations as self-governing, autonomous, sovereigns. In your, the, uh, the interview you did um, um, when your book came out or maybe before your book came out, um, where you talked about, and if I heard this right, the role, the importance of the interactions between the federal government and these sovereign nations and the impact that has had on U.S. law. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a, little, talk a little bit about that, how those interactions have actually are fundamental to some of the laws that we have in this country? Well, um... The federal uh, government's um, policies and practices change, have changed dramatically over time. And so uh, one of the emphases in this project is to really underscore how powerful the federal government became, not in 1787, not in 1840, but after the Civil War, and particularly during Reconstruction uh, through the kind of growth of congressional authority. Um, 
And the last of those mentions of the Constitution, as you referenced, uh, was in the 14th Amendment itself. Uh, and the 14th Amendment, you know, which establishes due process and begins a kind of process of congressional authorization of individual and uh, kind of legal rights and principles that are still with us in all kinds of everyday ways, um, has a exclusionary practice with Native Americans um, and also um, limits uh, and has done so in part to um, limit the jurisdiction of Native nations in Western territories. Uh, because the federal government is uh, simultaneously doing many things in the uh, Reconstruction era. Um, and so uh, one of the kind of tensions in this kind of post-war period that comes to define the republic as a whole is how actually expansive is congressional power over places that have no essentially American or Anglophone uh, settlers in places like Arizona or uh, Montana um, that are really, really under uh, what we'd consider under settled um, by contemporary terms. The federal government is the agent, essentially, of historical infrastructure development, of the builder of roads and uh, forts and railroads and administrative agencies like uh, um, Indian agents and superintendencies and boarding schools later. And so this whole infrastructure of what we'd call Western American state formation, uh, much of it is done around Indian affairs. So we can't like, you know, there's cities all over Western North America that are kind of have their original incipient kind of uh, settlement histories that are tied to the history of the federal government's relationship with Indians. But we just can't because of our focus on states our focus on other paradigms of American history. We just can't see this essential centrality that I'm trying to identify. And let, let me just kind of uh, also say that this book is, you know, nowhere near comprehensive. It is very long and, you know, it isn't, I think, in certain ways ambitious. Uh, but this Big. is really a kind of a, a, a clearing call for others and, uh, and non-academics and many to just kind of potentially continue the rediscovery that I'm, um, um, you know, discussing. And it's this theme of rediscovery I want to come back to, but I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier. You just briefly mentioned boarding schools. But um, I want to talk more about this because last May, the Department of Interior released a report that found an estimated thousands or tens of thousands, that's a quote, of Native children died while attending 53 federally funded boarding schools. You write about the creation of these schools. What was their purpose? Um, you know, that, um, that report and those studies and those unearthings are also, uh, connected with similar, uh, undertakings that are happening in Canada. And in Canada, the history of what they're known as residential schools, as opposed to government boarding schools, partly because they're handled by a missionary, uh, or uh, non-government agencies, um, that history has become, uh, much more kind of recognized in Canadian consciousness and academic inquiry than it is in the United States. Um, and it helped motivate um, a national or parliamentary authorized Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which conducted um, thousands of interviews, published, you know, voluminous uh, findings um, and held um, uh, like teach-in or kind of uh, listening uh, sessions all across the country. That report called Canada's practice of forcible assimilation cultural genocide. We in the United States have struggled to make that kind of recognition, uh, but that is what uh, Canadian uh, government uh, in, uh, conducted uh, researchers are calling these institutions. They are institutions of not cultural, not uh, physical extermination, but cultural extermination. 
Uh, they removed children from their families often um, for years on end. Uh, they were notoriously uh, famous for their disciplinary pedagogy. Um, they uh, lacked um, heating and kind of essential forms of uh, welfare. And their intentions were to, in the, um, in the ideology and the phrasing of the architect Richard Henry Pratt, a government uh, military officer who had uh, been uh, in charge of uh, imprisoned Native Americans, both in Oklahoma and in uh, Fort Marion in Florida, uh, he saw at these incarceration, these institutions of incarceration, the ways that Native peoples uh, responded essentially to militarized forms of uh, drills and uh, roll calls and uniforms and other types of um, 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 impositions. And he then carried them into a boarding school environment that expanded across the country. So the his idea, uh, the, his phrasing was to kill the Indian but save the man. And these so these are institutions that intended, though they did not uh, always yield those results, they intended to um, forcibly change the cultural, linguistic, religious, and ideological practices of Native American communities. You know, Professor, I can't help but think of Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project when reading the, your book, The Rediscovery of America, you and she not only argue for and present a fuller telling of our history, and in the process, you're challenging how we as a nation view ourselves. Um, this is just my view. I'm just wondering, is that a stretch for me to say? Well, I, you know, I really um, was intrigued by your kind of general thematic emphasis on race in America. And uh, we do kind of live in a historical environment in which uh, multiracial paradigms have yet to fully um, dislodge uh, the kind of binaries of black-white uh, racial uh, formation or studies that are at the heart of much recent American historical inquiry. And so I'd like to think that uh, the 1619 Project and uh, the Rediscovery of America are both moving us towards a point where we can have more interrelated rather than um, segmented uh, multiracial histories. And I was insufficiently able to fully um, engage some of the, you know, classical and, you know, really recent um, or classic and really recent um, kind of canonical works in African-American history, some of which have really helped expose things like the hybridity of Native American communities in the American South who incorporated generations of African-American runaways, um, slaves and later freedmen. Um, and uh, we hopefully can reach a point in the not too distant future where we're not talking about, you know, racial histories in isolation, but in relationship. And so I'm really um, a kind of obviously, um, you know, honored to be recognized in that kind of light. Uh, the book just did come out on Tuesday and I'm still um, kind of, um, you know, um, responding to kind of the initial uh, set of potential uh, responses, but that's really um, a quite a, you know, kind of kind recognition. Well, I mean, I, I mean, couldn't help but think of it. Because, um, I think we might be around the same age. I'm old enough to remember um, the, those encyclopedias or, or, you know, biology books where you've got the main page and then you have these plastic yeah. overlays that lay, you lay right. one down, you see one set of organs, you lay another one down, you see more, right. but you see them all together. And right. 
in looking at the rediscovery of America and having you know looked at 1619 Project, that's what it felt like to me. You've got um, American history, as I've been taught, with right. the overlay of 1619 that gives a, a, a little more, a more complete picture, with the overlay of the rediscovery of America, which gives an even more, more complete, more complex history of this country. That's where that's where um, that question came from. You know, that's a great um, kind of visual and even kind of pedagogical metaphor to think about because um, uh, the maps that are in this book, which took quite a while to uh, kind of construct and research and uh, formulate, um, uh, could be really interesting uh, transparencies or something, you know, to put over a, uh, a map of the United States that is on a, you know, a, a diner a roadside map or some kind of a conventional of cart cartography. Because it, you know, I think Google has made things a lot easier in certain ways. Uh, but for the longest time, uh, Native American communities didn't even appear on maps, you know, and uh, uh, the jurisdiction of tribes, you know, simply isn't known until uh, one often has to encounter them. Like if you're, you know, looking for, uh, you know, uh, fishing in Montana or, you know, trying to uh, find, uh, you know, um, now, uh, you know, uh, uh, gaming opportunities in certain regions, uh, you now have the capacity to kind of um, uh, see American Indian uh, communities um, and kind of self-governing practices in various forms. Uh, but for a long time, uh, these communities literally weren't uh, represented. And so uh, we need the kind of infrastructure. We need the maps. We need the statistics. We need uh, the primary sources. We need the interpretive overviews, which this book is attempting. We need uh, lots of um, kind of uh, things and work to kind of reform uh, these previous centuries or generations, at least, of scholarly um, misrecognition. Well, when I was a kid, I was a, a big map nerd, still am. Um, and, and one of the things I discovered in, in your book and in the map towards the back is that my family is from, um, uh, I think it's called Northampton County in North Carolina, where the Meharan Nation is. Right. And so now I'm and I would hear about although my you know my grandmother would mispronounce it she'd leave off the end it was always the, the Meharry Meharry but mm -hmm. um and just talking about the Meharry River but it's the Meharan River uh there um in that that part of North Carolina so as I dive deeper into the book cuz I'm going to be honest I have not finished the book but as I dive deeper I'm, I'm very curious to see um how all of this will will factor into my further knowledge of the country. One last question for you before we completely run out of time, Professor. You're currently teaching your book in your spring intro to American Indian in American Indian history class at Yale. What do you want your students to take away from this course and your book? Um, I'd like them to see, as I um have recently uh, told them that it's their generation that has the capacity to remedy, if not redress these previous, not just like scholarly or intellectual habits, but policy failures, uh, unconstitutional practices and other really kind of histories of injustice and, and um, uh, negligence. Um, so, I'm really kind of inspired by um, young people today, even though they're dealing with lots of challenges, particularly after COVID, um, they're really hungry for a different
different uh, set of tools and understandings that can better prepare them for uh, the challenges of the 21st century, climate change, racial inequities, uh, systemic uh, impoverishments of particularly um, minoritized communities in America. These are, you know, some of the, you know, defining challenges of our time, obviously. Um, and so I've been really uh, happy to see particularly uh, several student newspapers and younger reporters from other uh, outlets kind of really take uh, the, the charge of this project. Um, I don't consider myself old, uh, but I am, uh, you know, part of a generation that had to kind of break into a certain kind of, uh, of paradigm and sometimes trying to, you know, upset apple carts or uh, reinvent things or rediscover them uh, pr produces sometimes degrees of uh, backlash um, or, uh, or resistance. So um, I tell the other uh, students um, that this is really uh, their future. And this book, in some small way, I hope uh, helps prepare them for it. Yale professor Ned Blackhawk, author of The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. I've had a really nice time with you uh, today. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.